Hello everyone, my name is Brian Sparks and I'm the lead pastor at One Church in Texas. This is the One Church Podcast. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I pray that this message encourages you and that in our time together you encounter Jesus and that your life will never be the same. But today uh, we're finishing our four-week series that we've been in today together of Nehemiah. And so if you're just joining the journey, hello, uh, we've been on a four week journey and today we're crossing the finish line. So you're running across the finish line with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, verses seven through 12. Nehemiah has been gone for a year. They got the city rebuilt. They rebuilt the walls. Uh, Ezra rebuilt the temple and uh, Nehemiah let them know, okay, guys, now it's time for you to go rebuild your homes. Like get about your life. You can resume your regular scheduled programming. And so he's gone for for a year and he comes back and he writes this. He says, and I came to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib. Okay, let's explain who Eliashib is. Eliashib is a priest and he's mentioned in Nehemiah chapter three, uh, verse one. And he is the grandson. His grandson was one of the people who helped rebuild the temple. Um, You'll find him mentioned in the book of Ezra. So, which just side note, even though he's from a long legacy of men of faith, At some point in his journey, he had to decide, will his grandfather's faith be his faith? And we see that he began to make compromises. Might I just suggest to you that you are not going to live a Christian life that's on fire for God because of your grandparents or your parents. At some point, your faith journey has to become your own faith journey. And so Eliashib, in this time, in this journey, he had started to make some compromises. Remember that Nehemiah has two enemies. One of them is named Sambalit. The other one's name is Tobiah. And somewhere along the way, Eliashib's family started to kind of like Tobiah's family. And so they got married. Some of Eliashib's family got married to Tobiah's family. And it said, and what had the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing him an adversary. I love in the Amplified, it like, brings it out. He's like, dude, this guy did me dirty, man. An adversary, a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Next one. And it says, and it grieved me exceedingly. And I threw all the house furnishings of Tobiah out of the chamber. Um, He's like, he's doing a Beyonce moment right now, throwing it all out and lighting it on fire. Uh, You you ever watched like snapped when somebody just loses it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? All right, Nehemiah is snapping right now. He is throwing everything out. Because here's the thing, is that not only did Eliashib give some of his family over to Tobiah's family to get married, he said, hey, Tobiah, you need a place to live? No problem. Let Here, there's a place here in the house of God. I'll clear it out for you and you can just make your home in here. And so he lets the enemy literally move in to the house of God. I, I love, I was reading Oswald Chambers the other day and he said, the devil no longer has to attack the church. He just joins it. It really is the truth. Next verse, it says, then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with cereal offerings. What's up, Captain Crunch? And frankincense, he was in an MLM. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work were forced by necessity, had each fled to his field. Just pause right here. When, whenever the people stopped giving, the way it was set up is that as they gave to the house of God, a portion went to the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers. 
And that portion is what they lived off. So the minute that the people of God stopped giving, there was no portion for the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers to live off of. So they had to go out into the fields, go back to where they came from. And so whenever they forced out the godly influence through their lack of obedience in the area of giving, there created space in the storehouse for Tobiah to move in. And so that's why Tobiah had a room is because the people of God weren't being obedient in the area of their giving. And without them being obedient in the area of the giving, the city lost its influential voice of the priest, the Levite, and the gatekeeper. Next verse. Says, then I contended with the officials and said, why is the house of God neglected and forsaken? And I gathered the Levites and singers and set them in their stations. And then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms. If you're taking notes today, and I hope you are, because we have a saying here that paper never forgets. Can you title this time, this next few moments that we share together as arise and defend? Arise and defend. Can we pray as we continue? Father, I just thank you. Lord, I thank you that through this next few moments, Lord, I thank you that you're showing us the importance, God, of the gatekeeper, the priest, and the Levite. God, I ask that any area where we've allowed a Tobiah to move in, that, Lord, you illuminate it, you show it to us, and that, Lord, we have the faith to move them out. That, Father, I thank you that every ear is open and receptive, every heart will be softened for the seed of the word of God. I declare every life will be changed, that no one will leave the same. In Jesus' name, and every person who believed it said, amen. You know, after uh, they rebuilt the walls and everything was in its place, your Bible says in Nehemiah chapter eight that uh, they got the people together and Ezra, which is an incredible man of God. In fact, he has a whole book named after him. You know, you're amazing when you have a whole book in the Bible named after you, right? And it's named Ezra because he wrote it. And so, uh, but Ezra is one of the leading priests. In fact, he was so influential in his time. He wrote first and second Chronicles and he, he's believed to have written first and second Chronicles. And the things that he put in place on the way that they transcribed the Bible, the way that they copied out the first five books of the Bible is still used, the practices he put in place is still used today, 2,400 years later. So he was a big man of faith. He was very influential. He was watching the state of the nation of Israel decline and he knew that they would not get to where what God had wanted for them until they reinstituted the ritual practices of giving the priest, the Levite and the gatekeeper. So we see Ezra has a big, influence. And so the the walls have been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. And so in Nehemiah chapter eight, they get all the people together and they have church service. And in this church service, Ezra, your Bible says he gets up and he starts talking to them. He reads the first five books in the Bible. Now imagine you show up to church today and I start out with Genesis chapter one and I don't stop with Genesis. I move into Exodus and then I start reading Leviticus and then I go into numbers and then I read Deuteronomy and that includes concludes today's church service. That is a long church service. And it says that they all stayed awake. It doesn't say anybody fell asleep, but it says that they all listened to the word and they raised their hands. They shouted amen because a quiet church is a dead church. They weren't dead. And so they shouted amen and they bowed their faces to the ground. At the end of Nehemiah chapter eight, they all decide that they're gonna make a covenant with God. And they say, we will be faithful to do all this. In Ezra chapter nine, um, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter nine, Ezra goes, hey, I just wanna give you a summary. Uh, it's just side note. If you wanna get the whole summary of everything in the first five books of the Bible, you can read uh, Nehemiah chapter nine. And Ezra gives you the spark notes, okay? He gives you to you in like 30 verses. He sums up all the first five books of the Bible. Isn't that good? Do you want a summary of the first five books? 
of the Bible without reading it, read Nehemiah chapter nine, okay? So he sums it up. And basically it's this, is that the people of God, they were in a cycle. The people of God went from disobedience. Then they were given to their enemies. They cried out and asked God for help and God saved them. In fact, this cycle is what I, if you do Bible graffiti, I have this written at the top of my Bible because it basically sums up all of biblical history. The people of God were disobedient. They were given over to their enemies. They cry out and ask God for help and God saves them. You know, I've been pastoring for a lot of years, in fact, almost two decades. And I will just say, I've watched this cycle go on through most people's lives. Because if you ever think in your life that you can just spiritually set your life on autopilot or on cruise control, you are deceived. And what Ezra is letting people know in Nehemiah chapter nine is this, is that there is a law of decay. And the law of decay tells us this, is that the ultimate cause of why everything, it's the ultimate cause of why everything ultimately falls apart and disintegrates over time. Material things are not eternal. Everything appears to change eventually and chaos increases. Everything ages and wears out. Even death is a manifestation of this law. I will just say, if your faith is not growing, it's decaying. If you're not working on your marriage to be healthier, your marriage is in decay. If you're not working on growing spiritually, you're spiritually decaying because anything left unto itself is gonna begin to fall apart. And Ezra summing it up, he said, hey, if, if me reading the first five books of the Bible didn't sum it up for you enough, let me just let you know that your life is gonna be in a cycle and it's gonna go like this. You're gonna go from disobedience and you're gonna be given to your enemies. You're gonna cry out and ask God for help and then God's gonna save you. I will tell you, I've seen people through the years so many times, they show up, they were disobedient to live their life the way that God told them to live. Then now they're faced with whatever it is. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. Maybe their kids are now addicted to drugs. Maybe whatever it is, fill in the blank. Their life is in financial ruins. They come in and they ask God for help. God radically delivers them and then they go right back into disobedience but I wanna tell you there's a better way. There's a different cycle that we can live in. It looks like this. We have radical obedience. We get protection from our enemies. We ask God for help and now all of a sudden God saves us. When I was reading this, I thought it was interesting because Ezra, as influential as he was, what's interesting is Ezra and Nehemiah served as the buffer for the people of God between them and the enemies. When Tobiah and when Sambalit would come along, they were the ones that were down on their knees praying and asking God how to save them. And the people of God were so busy building what God told them to build, they didn't know how to face the enemy. And so now we see in Nehemiah chapter 12, Ezra is mentioned for the last time he falls off our pages. In fact, there's three different predictions on how he died. The first is they said there is legend in Jewish tradition that he, he died whenever Tobiah was moving into the temple. They took Ezra's life because Ezra would not permit it. Another theory is that he just died of old age in the year that Nehemiah was gone. And there's a third one that he fled whenever they were pushed out of the temple as Tobiah came in. No matter how he died, we know this for sure, his presence was not there. And now the people of God are faced without Nehemiah, without Ezra, and they have an enemy present. 
And because they had never grown and cultivated a faith of their own, they didn't know how to stand. And I think it's interesting because here I want you to see that our radical obedience does not mean that our enemy will not still be present. Because I think the common misnomer in our society is this, is that when I'm radically obedient, my enemies disappear, but that is not true. In fact, Psalm 23 says he prepares a table in the presence of your enemies. In fact, the Bible says no weapon formed against you can prosper, which means that the weapon will be formed. It will be very present, but it will not be able to prosper you. In other words, in my radical obedience, God gives me protection for my enemies. And here's what happened is Eliashib is now facing an enemy that he did not know how to fight. He had relied on his grandfather. He had relied on Ezra. He had relied on Nehemiah. And I began to realize how when we see a society where Christians are deconstructing at rapid rates, I began to realize that we have a Nehemiah generation of people that have rode the coattails of great men and women of God, but never cultivated a faith of their own. So when all of a sudden the enemy is present, we thought that when we obeyed that the enemies would flee. We didn't know that our radical obedience almost brings the enemy on the onslaught. And then we cry out to God and then God begins to save us, which then necessitates me to go right back into radical obedience. Nehemiah, before he left, he set everything in place to set the people up to succeed. And he puts three positions in place. The first one that he gives them is the gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper, we see him whenever Nehemiah comes back in Nehemiah 13, as you close out this chapter, uh, you will see that Nehemiah puts back in place the gatekeeper, the priest, and the Levite saying that no season of our life should these three things not be present. The gatekeeper does this. They, number one, they watch for what's coming into the city. In fact, throughout your Bible, every time you see problems happen, it's when a mixed multitude begin to come in to God's people. It's these people that come in and they want the benefits of serving God without cost. They want the benefits of serving God. They want it to look good. They want to post it on the ground, but they don't really want to live a life. In fact, whenever your Bible says that the people of, of Israel are leaving out of Egypt, and it says that there was a mixed multitude that decided to join them. And in the book of Numbers, it tells you that that mixed multitude is the one who began to complain about the manna that God was feeding them in the wilderness. And they said, didn't we have it better back in Egypt? All we have is this manna. Can't we have meat to eat? And your Bible says that that day that God rained down quail and then a plague goes through the camp and kills off a bunch of the people. I will say that portion, that chapter in the Bible wouldn't have ever been written if they wouldn't have let the mixed multitude come in with them into the wilderness. Be careful that you don't let people who were never supposed to go with you in your next season. There are some people that you need to be okay that they left. You need to be okay. Quit trying to talk people into going with you. They're actually the people that are causing the problems in your life. It was the mixed multitude. And here Nehemiah is, and he tells them, hey, go back through the camp. You got to get the Ammonites out. You got to get the Moabites out. You got to get these people, this mixed multitude. I want to ask you, are there some people in your life that God's been convicting you of that it's time to unfriend? There's some people that they shouldn't have influence. You got to be careful. We got to be gatekeepers. We got to make sure that we are watching who comes in. The next thing that they did is they closed the city gates on the Sabbath. I will just say that there should be some times that people can't contact you. 
There should be some times that we set apart and we deem holy. And I will say, I know this isn't popular, but for my house, Sunday morning worship was a non-negotiable at my house. So when my son was on a baseball team and the coach said, hey, we're playing on Sunday morning and it's at this time and the time was in conflict where he couldn't go to one service and go play ball, I would tell the coach, I'm sorry, my son won't be at the game. Why? Because I'm not gonna bow my knee to the idol of baseball. We serve God in my house. And here's the thing is he can play baseball Monday through Saturday. He can play anytime, but there is an hour a week that we're deeming as holy to the Lord. Are we okay? And, and I'll say, I'm, I'm this holy and this ritualistic about my morning devotion with the Lord. I think every morning there should be a time that's consecrated as holy unto him. Not for text messages, not for email. I take it literally. When the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God, that means that I don't open my text messages first. I open my YouVersion Bible app. I look at the verse of the day. I want the first thing, the meditation of my heart to be on his word and what he's saying. I want the first voice that I hear to be his voice and not not somebody else's voice. And so I will just say, as a gatekeeper over your life, do you guard God's time? Or are you just opening the gates? I'll tell you that if, you, if church attendance is negotiable to your kids, don't be surprised when God is negotiable. You need to be a gatekeeper for your family. You need to be a gatekeeper with your time. Watch those things. The next thing is the priest. And the priest did this. Number one, they guarded the word. And number two, they were mediators in prayer. And we've talked about the role of the priest often throughout this series. But I will just say to you, if you, if you didn't listen to Arise and Return, I wanna encourage you, go back, listen to the first part. But I don't wanna belabor my point, but my prayer is this, is that you have begun to prioritize the importance of the word and the importance of prayer in your life. Prayer is to the spirit what air is to the body. And the word is literally bread to our body. So we cannot live without air and we cannot live without bread. The same is true of your spiritual life. You need air and you need bread. This is your spiritual air and this is your spiritual food. You need to take of the body every day, right? I need his word every day. The next role is the role of the Levite. He set up the Levite and the Levite did this. They led the people in worship. Now there's a difference in a karaoke song and worship. The worship carries the anointing. And, and that's what we just experience every time in worship. There's this moment where heaven comes down and touches earth and you feel the anointing and you know the presence of the Lord is here. They, they led the people in worship. Number two is they guarded the sacred offering. That their role was to guard the sacred offering. And the next one is, is that they would be in charge of the sacrifices. So their primary role was over the sacrifice of worship, over the sacrifice of giving. And I think this is interesting because in our lives, when people start to decline spiritually, one of the first places they give up is in the area of their giving. Might I just say it this way, giving is both the thermostat and the thermometer of our Christian life. It measures our spiritual temperature and it also helps set it at the right level. I wanna encourage you, giving isn't just about giving, put dropping money in a bucket or back there at a giving station or doing your push pay. No, it's setting the spiritual climate of my life. And Tobiah was able to move into the house of God because the storeroom was empty. I wanna ask you, is your storeroom empty?
And the first thing Nehemiah comes in, he realizes that the people's spiritual climate has been in decline. And the first thing he does is he goes out, he sister snaps, he gets everything from the enemy out of the storeroom. He throws it all out by himself. Now, might I just tell you that everybody's just watching. Have y'all ever watched dad just like freak out as a kid? Do you have those memories of your dad just freaking out? And, and, and all the kids, if you will, are watching Nehemiah freaking out. He's throwing everything out. And here's the part that trips me up. Nobody lends a hand because they are all right then convicted of their sins. And the first thing he does after he cleans it out, it says that he cleansed it. He, he prays over it. He sanctifies it back to the Lord. And immediately his answer to, to reverse out what everything that they had done is to immediately set up an altar. And he calls for giving. Isn't it beautiful that the way he gets them out of spiritual decline was not to preach to them a message, but to call them to giving? Because if the storeroom would have been full, Tobiah wouldn't have ever been able to move in. And he says, it's not enough that I moved him out now because he'll come right back in. So I've got to make sure that we give right now. We got to put an altar in place right now because here's the thing. He's letting them know that giving is both the thermostat and the thermometer of our Christian life. It measures our spiritual temperature and helps set it at the right level. I wanna ask you, when you receive your giving statement at the end of the year, is your spiritual life hot or you look warm? I will just say in this Christian journey, there comes a point where you can no longer live off the faith of an Ezra or Nehemiah. It's your sacrifice. There is an altar. In fact, whenever you read through the, the tabernacle, it tells you that the very first thing they saw when you would walk into the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture you would see is the altar. And the altar reminds you this, something had to be given so I could live. Before entering the presence of God, I have to give up something if I wanna experience him. And at some point in this journey, you're going to have to give up something if you want more of God. There's two altars that we, I believe, we're called to build. Number one is a personal altar. You should have a personal altar, a place where you meet with God. It may be for you, for me, it's running. Uh, it's also on my sofa every single morning. I sit in the same spot. It's a holy spot. It's where I meet with the Lord every single morning. Those county roads, when I run, I, I'm praying. I'm talking to God. I pray that during this series that you've cultivated a personal altar. But number two, you're called to have a corporate altar. And, and it's a space where you go and you meet with God, with the people of God. A personal altar is not enough. You need to have a corporate altar. And I will just say this. We're not the church for everyone, but we're the church for someone. And we hope that someone's you. But if you don't have a church that you call home, I want to encourage you. Find a church that is your corporate altar. That this is the place that I meet with God, with the people of God. And people say, well, I don't really need that. I can meet with God anywhere. Here's the thing. is people ask me all the time, they say, Crystal, do you believe we're in the last days? I think we're more in the last days than the disciples were. And the disciples believed they were in the last days. So I would just submit to you that we're in the last, last days, okay? And at some point, one generation is gonna be right and they're gonna be the generation. But I will say this, that the Bible says that do not forsake assembling together even more as you see the day approaching. So if you believe that we are in the last days, it means that your church attendance should amp up, not decline. 
And so that means that all throughout history, there's never a season of life where I take off from the corporate altar that I have both a personal altar and a corporate altar. So four things about altars. Number one, they need a builder. And I think there's four different kinds of builders. The first one is a pagan Christian view. This person builds altars, but as a way of manipulation. God, I'll give so that you do this. It's almost like genie altar. I was talking to a man one time and he told me, he said, Crystal, okay, I'm gonna give this whole church thing a try. I'm gonna start giving. I'm gonna start being obedient in the area of the tithe. And if God doesn't do this, this, this in the next six months, once I'm doing all this stuff, then I'm out. And I said, just go ahead and save your giving because God won't be manipulated. Giving is this, God, if you never, I still will. Come on, somebody. But there's a lot of Christians that have this pagan Christian view. The next one is the Christian Buddhist view. And this is God is everywhere. Jesus is my life coach. Uh, I saw a girl post on Instagram one time. She said, I don't highlight the verses that bring correction to me. I just go through my Bible and find the ones that encourage me because that's the Jesus I serve. Okay, I wanna just tell you that Jesus isn't just a warm, fuzzy meme sliding into your inbox. He's also a voice of correction. But a lot of people have the Christian Buddhist view and this is where self is God. And I'm the ultimate decider of what happens next. <sighs> Number three, progressive view. This is God loves me. People tell me all the time, but Crystal, God is love. God is love. Everybody, God is love. I see it on signs, church signs everywhere. And I will just say, the Bible does describe God as love a few times, but 400 times in the Bible, He's described as holy. He is holy love, which means there is not room for your self-seeking sinful love because the third person of the Trinity isn't called the love spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. And a progressive view says, God loves everyone. He sees my heart. Yeah, He sees your heart, but He also sees your actions and your actions are sinful. And He does not have room for your sinful actions where He's taking you. And there's some things you're gonna have to put on the altar if you wanna go to the next level with Him. Number four, I believe this is us. We're a seeker view, which means this, God, I'm seeking you at all costs. There, there's nothing left on the table. The altar is the place that I meet with God. The one person I'm seeking is God's will, God's design, God's heart, God's intent. I'm not seeking my own way. I'm, not, I'm gonna give when it hurts. I'm gonna do what you asked me to do, even when it costs me some followers, even when it means some people are gonna walk away. I'm the seeker of you. There is nothing off limits. And in the Bible, you'll see this, that altars always have an event. So there's a moment in time where God calls a builder, but then there's an event. There, there is a time where they have to act on what God's asked for. Your Bible tells a story in Genesis chapter four. And in Genesis chapter four, there's two brothers. One's name is Cain and one's name is Abel. And Cain is a Christian Buddhist. He wants to serve God, but he wants to serve God his way. And so your Bible says that he brings, over the course of time, he brings to God an offering on the altar. But Abel's offering, the Lord says that he looked on it with pleasure. And Cain gets frustrated because he's like, I'm a good guy. I gave stuff. I, I gave. I did what God told me to do, but he didn't do it the way God told him to. 
And because he didn't do it the way God told him to, it didn't get the approval of God. And instead of changing himself, he does this, he goes and he murders his brother. But God does not change the standard. And I'll say there's a lot of Christian Buddhists out there and we want God to change the standard. And I will just tell you that God will not change the standard for your personal preferences. And because of this, Cain is separated from the presence of God and he goes into the rest of his life, he's sent into wandering. And there's a lot of Christians that are wandering out on the earth. And the reason is this, is because they will not put on the altar what God's asking for. Their lifestyle, their pride, their unforgiveness, their tithe. We want the blessings of God, but we have an empty altar. And in every place that you see in the Bible, it has a builder, has an event, but it also has a location. There is a place where God moves. There is a place that is holy. There is a place that belongs only to Him. And it's in that place that God begins to move. And every time you see God make an altar, it's in a high place in a corporate worship area, it's in a high place. Why? Because he doesn't want it to be a unseen thing. He wants it to be a seen thing. He wants to make sure that you living this kind of lifestyle is gonna change how everybody in your world sees you. Do people in your life recognize you are Christian? Not because you tell them where you go to church, not because you wear a one church shirt, but by the way you live. Because every Christian on this journey, you are builder. You, there's an event that you're gonna have to act, but there's also a location. And that location identifies what I believe. Number four, there's an offering. There comes a point where you've gotta offer what God's asking for. And some of us, if I'll just be honest, our altars are empty. And I wanna ask you, I, I, I just wanna implore you with this because in John chapter six, your Bible, it's my favorite chapter in the Bible. And I know I say that all the time, but it actually is my favorite. And, and I love John chapter six because Jesus just got done multiplying the loaves and the fish. And he's done so many miracles. And then he preaches a popular message called this, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he had thousands, somebody say thousands thousands of people there. They, they, here's the thing is, yes, there were 12 disciples, but there were supposed to be thousands. But once it started to be something they didn't understand, once it started requiring of them to put something on an altar, once it was no longer about what they could receive, but now it's gonna come at a personal sacrifice. Your Bible says it goes down from a thousand to 12. And Jesus is such a baddie. He looks at the 12 and says, are you gonna go too? I was doing this before you and I'll be doing it after you. I'm not gonna change the standard because people are leaving. The standard is still the standard. This journey is gonna cost you something. You are a builder. There is an event you're gonna have to give it up. There's a location, but there's also a sacrifice. All of us have something that God's asking us to give. And I will say that your giving is a thermometer, but it's also the thermostat of your spiritual life. So I wanna ask you, what are you holding on to? Cause you can't bring that to where you're going. You can't bring that to the next thing. You can't have the pride and still go in. You can't keep the unforgiveness. You can't keep the striving. You can't keep the attitude. You can't bring your unsubmissiveness, but you can have it, but you'll be like Cain and you'll wander for the rest of your life. 
And it's not because that was God's will for you. It's because of your inability to put on an altar what God asked for. And I've seen this game so many times. And I wanna ask you this question, because here's the thing, is that Nehemiah was gone for one year and when he came back, everything was in decline. I wanna ask you this question, where are you gonna be at in one year? It's July 2nd, 2024. Are you on fire for God or is your fire gone? It's July 2nd, 2024. Are you in that seat or is somebody else taking your place? It's July 2nd, 2024. Is your marriage better or worse? It's July 2nd, 2024. Have you read through your Bible or did you quit again? It's July 2nd, 2024. Have you prioritized the altar or you left it empty? One year, they go from being on fire, seeing the miracles of God, the presence of God, to allowing a Tobiah to take the place that God was supposed to be. Here's the thing, is that the whole time that Nehemiah was building, Tobiah kept coming in and taunting them. And the people of God thought that Tobiah was after the wall. So they thought when the wall was done, Tobiah would leave. Tobiah never cared about the wall. He wanted the throne where God was supposed to be. Every enemy of your life wants to sit in the place of your heart where only God is supposed to be. That's why he wants the area of the tithe because the Bible says where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. So he wants to make sure that you get in covenant with a car payment that keeps you from paying, bringing to God your tithe. He wants to keep you up with that relationship that you were never supposed to be in because that way the Tobiah can sit and that's your place of, that's your source of love instead of God being the source of love. Am I talking to somebody in this place? But at some point you gotta decide, I want God more than I want that. And I'll just tell you, I'm not gonna let a Tobiah move in where God has called me to be. There, every morning I go to God. And the Bible says this, that David said every morning, I put before the pieces of my life and I wait for God's fire to descend. What does that mean? Every morning I put an offering on the altar. And that means some mornings I say, God, you can have my pride. God, you can have my need for being understood. God, you can have my dreams. God, you can have my kids. God, you can have my plans. Every morning I've got something to put on the altar because I know if the altar's empty, Tobiah's moving in. And I don't want a Tobiah moving in. So there's two questions as we conclude our, our time together. Number one, where is your altar? If I were to ask you right now where your altar is, your personal altar, could you lead me there? If I, if I asked you where your corporate altar is, could you tell me it's one church? Not just that you come there sometimes, but does somebody know your name here? Ooh. Somebody, somebody know your story, know what you're going through. This is my corporate altar. I'm linked arm in arm with these people. I'm not just slipping in and slipping out. No, this is the place I come and I meet with God. Number two, what is being offered on your altar? All of us, I believe that God was speaking different things throughout this series, different things God's asking of us. So I'm gonna conclude this time with the way we began, because it all begins right down here. If the people would have taken this stance, they wouldn't have ever fallen away in Nehemiah 13. But it's okay, it was because they were okay watching someone pray 
that they never began to be the people that were down on their knees. So let's pray together. Father, right now, God, whatever you want. Lord, even the song that we sing, you can have all of me. Lord, right now, we just declare as a people, there's nothing off limits. Even as we sang today, I don't want anything else. I don't want anyone else. God, you are what we're seeking. So Father, whether it's our pride, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's giving up our dreams, our plans, our desires, God, whether it's the area of obedience and the area of the tithe, God, anything you want, Lord, we say, we put it on the altar. And Father, right now, we just ask that in one year's time, that God, you will find us burning for you that God, you'll find us more on fire. Lord, I thank you that you're revealing to us, God, any person, Lord, that's come in and is being enthroned on a place that only you are supposed to be enthroned on. Father, right now, I just declare that there will be no Tobias on the throne of our heart, but God, you and you alone are in that rightful place. We thank you for it. If you're hearing the sound of my voice, you might say, Crystal, if I'm being honest, I've never prayed that prayer. I've never given Jesus my life. Maybe you're here and you say, Crystal, I prayed that prayer before, but if I'm being honest, I've made some mistakes and I've fallen away, but I feel God calling me back today. It's the moment between you and God. I'm not gonna call you forward, but I do wanna pray for you right where you're at. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I wanna ask you, do you know Jesus? If you prayed it before and you've walked away, are you ready to re-begin a new walk with Him? Will you lift your hand on the count of three? One, two, three, hands everywhere. Thank you, Jesus. I see hands, see hands. Thank you, God. Can we pray this across all of our campuses? Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Take my sins and by your grace, I take your righteousness. I make you the Lord of my life. I give you all that I am. I hold nothing back in Jesus' name. And every person who believed it said, Come on, can we give it up for every person who just prayed that prayer? Hey, I'm so proud of you if you prayed that prayer. It's your first step and I would love this to congratulate you. Can you text Decided to 903-634-7135? A member of our team would love to follow up with you, get you anything that you might need as you begin this incredible journey of faith. That concludes our four week journey through the book of Nehemiah. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening to this message. A special thanks to those who give generously to One Church. It's because of you that lives are being impacted all over the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe for more messages like this. Share this with a friend, post it on social media, and be sure to tag us at I Am One Church. Thanks again for listening.